it's a dark winter's night in Bavaria and it's a wintry afternoon in Vermont. I'm here with Zach Stein. It's really good to have you on, Zach. It's good to be back, man. Thank you. <sighs> Zach, you are very well respected in matters of deep sense making around this time and somebody that I and I know a lot of my good friends are always very excited to hear your reflections and inquiries into the into the multi-layered cake of this time, um, which hopefully we're going to slice into today. So, yeah, researching for this, I came across this awesome paper you wrote with Mark Gaffney on the apocalypse of the modern world system and the possibility of the democratization of enlightenment as um, a sort of way through the eye of the needle of this moment, this historical time. So I thought that way, that could sort of be the arc that we might move through today. And maybe in the first half, we can focus in on what is going on in the collective psyche right now? What is the nature of this apocalypse? And then potentially move into what is the what are the spaces? What are the openings of possibility? What are the um, what does the democratization of enlightenment potentially look like? Cool, that's a great place to uh, to dive in. Absolutely, that paper was I think like twenty fifteen or something twenty sixteen. It was uh, it was a while ago. Gaffney and I put that out. Um, uh, but the trends we were seeing there and the kind of solutions we're laying out are are absolutely still relevant. So um, I can go in any number of directions. Uh, so I'm curious which kind of kind of how to begin. Yeah, it's as I said, it's multi-layered, and I've seen you speak to different layers of it. And you had that piece, um, the war broke out in heaven, sort of almost two years ago now, I think, at the beginning of of COVID. Um, time. You've also spoken to the sort of schizophrenia that is being induced in the collective psyche by the unprecedented bombardment of image. Um, your recent work with Consilience Project speaks to the information war that our collective understanding is sort of nested in an information landscape that's that's at war um right and then with that we have a a, a psychodrama playing out i think and that's maybe we can delve into that a bit further um yeah. but maybe you could just sort of set the set the scene yeah i mean <clears throat> so just i mean to set the scene it's as i said you know back in 2015 uh, when I was finishing my second book, um, uh, there was a sense already <clears throat> that something like existential risk or civilizational collapse, um, uh, a kind of terminal vision, a kind of end vision for kind of this operating system, this civilizational epoch was in the air. <clears throat> um, and you know, then as we move closer to date, you get, <clears throat> you know, Jordan Hall, 
writing on Medium about the war on sense-making. And then Schmachtenberger on Rebel Wisdom also war on sense-making. And there was a sense of like how, um, how distorted and coercive the informational environment had become uh, and how fourth and fifth generational warfare uh, if I can speak very broadly to the consilience work on informational warfare, fourth and fifth generational warfare <clears throat> was now worldwide and massively impactful, um, which is to say that we were in something like the beginnings of a third world war that was an information war before mm -hmm. the pandemic began. And we were all aware of that, or at least we by we, I mean, presumably your buddies who are like into my work. It's like, okay, this is what was happening. Like we were already <clears throat> kind of epistemologically out to sea. Um, you know, I write in that essay for that recent perspective book, Dispatches from a Time Between Worlds. Um, this was written before COVID hit um, about the 2016 presidential campaign, Clinton versus Trump when the first instances of informational weapons of mass destruction were kind of used that would kind of drop the quote unquote atom bomb of information, <clears throat> which looks a little bit like Cambridge Analytica uh, and a whole bunch of stuff that um, had already been in play for a while. Uh, and so, and then what, what's interesting is that when the pandemic unfolded it fold, unfolded into that pre-existing mm. pathological informational environment <clears throat> right. um, and so one way to think about enlightenment and it's actually the way enlightenment like in that strict religious sense <laughs> that's the way gaffney and i speak about it in that paper uh, is as sanity just full stop but like if you, it's like an underlying theme <laughs> it's not mind-blowing psychedelic experience although that can happen. <laughs> uh, and it's not some kind of like channeling the full intelligence of God or something like that, but that happens uh, supposedly in the hagiographies and sutras and things of that nature. Uh, but a simple definition, I think that one that works is something like sanity, which has to do with your relationship with reality. And so we're already in a tenuous relationship with reality. And then, so then you have to think, okay, when the pandemic occurred, did the informational environment get better or worse? And I think the argument has to be that it got worse, right? Um, and so then I'm looking around as this thing unfolds and especially as the lockdowns deepen and vaccination mandates and other things begin to roll out. And I start looking around <clears throat> and realizing that like, we must have, did we, we, meaning we, like that smaller we, did we forget <laughs> that it was so distorted? You know what I mean? Uh, and so there, there's been a stress-induced regression to simplistic adoptions of media narrative in the context of the pandemic amongst people who previously were well aware of just how distorted and and disinformation induced and the whole thing is. And so what it looks like uh, is uh, that increasing certainty that comes with psychosis. 
So this is the where we're weaving the strands together. People <clears throat> who are aware of what it looks like to be in kind of florid psychosis, even forms of deep paranoia, even certain forms of neurosis come with a kind of pathological uh, certainty. Uh, uh, you're really sure that the government is surveilling you. Like and ever that every license plate has a number on it that has some significance to you, right? You're just positive about that. Like you're certain about that. That over-determined certainty on emotionally and identity important items um, is one of those signs, right, of insanity. <clears throat> and so, so what I'm doing is like setting the scene. <laughs> yeah. of, a, of a wide of a widespread um kind of deep pathology and again i'm not pointing fingers at individuals like i'm not saying that although there is i think low-grade ubiquitous psychopathology in individuals across the way i'm saying something more like that the culture itself um has has gotten uh yeah quite sick <laughs> uh, and what that means for a culture is that it it is losing touch with reality uh, and forming dogmatic certainties uh, and scapegoat and polarization dynamics as a result of those certainties, which is what you see when you study civilizational collapse as an educator and a psychologist across the board, you see. And, and also just when you study individual identity collapse, which is to say when you study deep forms of psychopathology, similar patterns occur um and so that is yeah that's the concern of where i'm at which is why i started to do that research on propaganda with the consilience paper because there's yeah. things that occur in those environments <clears throat> where you can start to kind of try to tease apart uh those signifiers and those <laughs> that that like semiotic soup kind of like get out of the psychotic break by pointing back to reality when possible, which can sometimes mean pointing out the distortions very clearly of what's occurring. Uh, so, so it's a, it's a little bit of, of yeah. what I'm thinking these days. Yeah. Just to, to, to try and sort of reflect back some of what I heard there. Um, so it seems like a key point is that the huge fragmentation and the move into kind of multipolar informational warfare so you're not saying one side is engaging in information warfare it's that a kind of warfare of information a manipulation of information towards strategic goals is coming from all different sides states parties individuals all right. towards different ends and it's right. in that context that we then get the pandemic and suddenly there's this move to like almost a top-down coherence that's coordinated between the states and the um, controllers of social media and the, um, the consensus as it's being manufactured and drawn out of scientific process is then being uh, sort of imposed as a coherent dogma. How, how is that resonating? I mean, that, but it's that's actually pretty close. It's pretty close. Yeah. I mean, what you're, what you have is, yeah, the multipolar information war. That's the first thing they get. Like one of the signs that you're 
captured <laughs> in the information war is if you believe that the information you are getting access to somehow isn't part of that and that it's only the bad guys who are engaging in propaganda and disinformation like, um uh, if you can say, hey, even the side that I agree with actually is involved in corrupt disinformation campaigns, but I still am with this side, but they are involved in corrupt disinformation campaigns, um, then you're a little bit more realistic. <laughs> uh, and then there's a different stance, which we can talk about, which we talked about last time we spoke about these kind of meta-paradigmatic consciousness, um, the kind of trans-perspectival uh, and communicative and conciliatory approach. Um, that's another matter. I mean, the so yes, yeah, so that's the first thing. It's multipolar, which means that it's not just one side <laughs> spewing out disinformation. It's all sides strategically spewing out disinformation. And so we have to come to terms with that. Um, and then that notion that there's this kind of strange recurrence or reversion back to non-decentralized kind of pre-digital broadcast modality of propaganda, which is to say, we're going to have one story here that everybody buys, which is not what the internet's about. The internet is not, a, the digital made that obsolete. This whole one story, everybody goes by thing. Uh, and then that escalated into the information wars. I mean, this was a lot to do with digital lowering the barriers of access into effective large-scale propaganda, right? So that's one thing that I write about with consilience. But in any case, the pandemic, because of the intensity of the situation, the stress, the kind of warlike atmosphere. Many people in their bodies and then many organizations were ready to kind of revert to the, to attempt to do a, a centralized propaganda campaign, kind of old school, as if we were all watching the same television channels and couldn't watch anything else. <laughs> uh, and then <clears throat> that and it resulted because we're, we're not in that situation. We have a digital decentralized information environment. Uh, there was a kickback. You had inevitable counter-expert discourses emerge, which tied into that pre-existing kind of polycentric kind of information war, right? And then I was noting more specifically, just to like deepen your reflection, and uh, I was noting also that individuals themselves under stress were reverting to simplistic ways of understanding the information environment again. Uh, even though before the pandemic, many of them were able to perceive the informational environment with more complexity and nuance. So I've seen that very directly. It's not clear exactly how that plays out, but it's one of the dynamics of, of widespread attempts at large scale propaganda is that you start to get um, forms of kind of a coercive, uh, a coercive patterning of speech and behavior um, and so that has begun to occur as well, which is the most disconcerting mm. thing, I think, in the whole situation uh, is, is that element of a kind of uh, reverting back to and actually desiring for that one narrative. <laughs> like many people who would never think of themselves as being, uh, you know, book burning, censoring, kind of like canceling types, um, let alone those people who are already that type, which is another conversation. Uh, many people who are now in those ranks on certain issues. Um, and so that's just, I think, worth noting the situation's gotten worse, the information war has gotten worse because there's more people convinced that their side is right 
rather than being convinced that we're not actually in a position to start talking about who's right and wrong because we're actually not even speaking to one another because <laughs> no one's engaging in good faith. So if you think your side has won the argument and is right, then you're probably pretty deeply captured. Um, if you're aware that actually my side included is not engaging in good faith. First of all, if you're on a side. <laughs> and so there's all of these dimensions where I'm seeing uh, what like as a reflective psychological practitioner and then studied in propaganda, you just start to see oh, these are the, what I've been calling the genocidal grammar or the thought terminating cliches that allow us to form tribes that hate one another with dogmatic certainties about our beliefs. Um, and that's not what the fourth estate should foster in a democracy. And it's not what any reasonable civic infrastructure would foster uh, in a digital age. And so this is just very clear that deeper problem, even than the pandemic, is the distortion of the information environment and the co-opting of the civic and educational infrastructures by a small number of technologists. <laughs> um, so, Yeah, that's really good. And I'm feeling like uh, a good pivot point here, especially as you sort of draw out, there is this um, psychological underlayer and that like the way you're describing it for me evokes like a, a toxic relationship. And I think there's something very fruitful for me when talking about collective psyche, a collective psychological process to that. It kind of mirrors individual process. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the context of COVID as the apocalypse COVID uh, of this time as a kind of apocalypse, and you've spoken to apocalypse as a kind of revealing of things. Um, part of what I've observed in my own journey, journey of lots of other people I've seen around is that COVID was kind of the moment that catalyzed confrontation with longstanding emotional trauma, uh, developmental arcs was sort of um, thrown into a crucible by the degree of instability at this time. And part of what I've come to understand in that inquiry is that the T loss of trauma is to draw out like unconscious material wants to draw out its, um, it wants to draw forth its reenactment so that it can be resolved and made conscious. Um, and so this is the individual process that I've observed a lot, but I think it's also happening collectively, perhaps on some level. And you can see in Germany and Austria as a unique way in which um, the historical trauma is sort of being represented, and like the sense of the possibility of that kind of collective sociopathy. Is, is being re-presenced and having to be reconfronted, and for a lot of a lot of the majority here, it's something that was sort of the other group or like over there. Mm -hmm. um, and for for others, you know, you're sort of on the receiving end of it, and your sense making is leading you into a place where you have suddenly become the scapegoat. Um, 
So, yeah, and we've seen in Australia, they're sort of coming to terms with their own. It's like drawing up this stuff about the genocide against the indigenous people there. Um, so what do you what do you make of that sense that this uh, the intensity, the psychological intensity of COVID, of the meta crisis, of the sort of schizophrenic peak episode that is happening in the collective psyche, that that is somehow drawing up the unconscious material of the past to undergo some sort of healing. I mean, it's interesting train of thought. What came to mind was an Emerson quote, actually, which is that uh, nature is the apocalypse of the mind, right? And so the apocalypse can be thought of as like a, a public end, right? It can be thought of as the end of everything for everyone, <clears throat> but a terminal vision of an individual life, which means an image of the ending of my life uh, is in that sense also uh, apocalyptic for, for me. <laughs> the judgment occurs, the ending of the mind, etc. cetera. Um, and that notion that there are times in life, even though we're living when we die to ourselves and that we can be present to personal apocalypse and live through a kind of personal apocalypse, right? Um, when you look at like Wallerstein's world systems theory and the multiple iterations of even the capitalist world system, um, you realize that there's the end of everything for everyone, but then there are these uh, endings uh, that occur in history and in life while we're living. And it is in those times that, yeah, the unveiling, the re-traumatization, uh, but also the opening up of new possibilities to occur. And so you have to be careful looking at the individual to collective metaphor, as you're saying, the, the close analogy. But I do think, yeah, the notion of the apocalypse for the individual, um, uh, which is to say the notion of identity death and identity rebirth. Um, and in that process, the unveiling or the revealing of prior latent imagery, right? And intention. So I can see that, <clears throat> you know, I'm not sure exactly what's happening at the collective level. Um, as far as the kind of the opening that you're describing, um, I'm not sure. Because uh, some of what is occurring is a side effect almost entirely of these lower order changes in infrastructure, specifically information infrastructure, but even lower order stuff like, um, you know, biomedical supply chains and stuff. Um, so, yeah, so I don't know how much the cultural patterns we're seeing are the result of a kind of psychoactive reemergence of archetypal patterns from the past in our culture and how much of them are psychological, basically pathological side effects of out of control infrastructure and distorted incentive systems, right? Mm. Like 
So that that's just my reflection because I think it's it's too yeah. easy to reduce this to the kind of left hand quadrants, if you will, the Wilbur's map. And I would actually say that a lot of what we're looking at here is not is not only the exhaustion of a way of life and of ideas, but the the exhaustion of a of a paradigm of material and infrastructural organization. And I think that digital is bringing that like to a head <laughs> that if we don't figure out how to constrain innovation in digital technologies for things other than profit, then we're going to build tools that destroy our minds and addict us to disinformation, right? So this is the problem we've suffered with throughout the capitalist world system of complete misincentivizing, misincentivizing innovation in the direction of profit um well it's fine when the oil spills were thousands of miles away <laughs> but when the innovation becomes a psychotechnology that literally has the power to basically kind of almost brainwash you mm. uh, then the, de the demand for our ability to be able to reign the power of technology for human good um that's like becomes extremely extremely pressing uh, wow I, uh, I suppose there is a there's a kind of meeting point there in that the the shift in the informational landscape and our capacity to like construct this feedback reality um based on these you know profit-driven metrics or whatever it is there's a like more than ever before or in a in a particular way we're able to create our reality our reality is being created for us on some level um like the sense for me is that we are living in a nightmare collectively, um, but we're also creating the nightmare. Um, like it's not, it's not that there's just an objective series of events. It's that there's this huge, um, there's this huge larger picture, which is how we have reacted, how we have created the conditions, like what has been the effect of these lockdowns and the possibility of more lockdown um, hanging over our heads. And that's what draws me to the sort of historical trauma of the First World War. If you think about like the shell shock, there's almost a, a way in which we're getting a digital shell shock of like hyper informational um, jarring jarring content coming through and and there's a way in which these lockdowns really connect us with the blitz and these different european um experiences yeah mm -hmm. yeah i mean that it's worth just noting the differences between first second third fourth fifth generational warfare as the thing becomes increasingly informational and less kinetic <clears throat> right which is to say much of what we are experiencing by we, I mean, almost everyone in the West. Um, and again, things look very different in Africa, incidentally, uh, for example, um, and in India, but for the West, for Europe and the United States, Canada, um, we're looking at a form, we're like in a war and most people don't realize that they're in a war. And so they wouldn't understand what you're saying. Cell, shell shocks, the analogy we should be using, I agree. <laughs> we should be using war-like analogies to describe the psychological side effects of the informational environment. Uh, uh, there has been some physical 
deprivations like lockdowns and maskings and other things, which will add to the effect. But the main effect has been screen-based information procurement at a rate that's just massively psychologically disorganizing. And that's information war, constantly on the battlefield 24-7. A new story could drop at any minute and it's like shells being dropped on you and you get this little limbic system reaction and then you see a counter story and you hate those people who give those stories and you're in the mix of the information war constantly, but you don't realize it's a war. You think you're doing a, your duty as a citizen, remaining informed about public events, right? Uh, when in fact you're being addictedly drawn into a combative and coercive informational environment. <clears throat> and so that's, how I've been trying to like raise the alarm, They're like guys, like, first of all, we need to protect the kids because like in most wars, we don't send the kids out. I mean, when that happens, then you're, you're in a bad, you're in a bad war, <laughs> uh, but I mean, it happens. Uh, but the point is that in most wars, we try to protect the children first and in particular, um, and so once you realize that it's a ubiquitous information war, uh, not a fourth estate <laughs> uh, and not an educational environment, um, then you try to protect the children. And then when you have to take precautions for yourself, right? Um, in terms of realizing just how coercive uh, and intentionally, intentionally frightening and intentionally emotionally dysregulating and intentionally filling you with the language of non-thought, which is the thought terminating cliche or the uh, genocidal grammars. Um, this comes from the work of Robert Lifton, a uh, psychiatrist who looked at uh, survivors of Hiroshima and people who were in Maoist uh, re-education camps. Um, so knowing that when you, when you go into social media environments and into the, even the large major news outlets like Fox, CNN, New York Times, wherever with, you know, their websites and everything that the affordances of those websites and how they interlock with Twitter and, and Facebook to form like an informational surround um, that you're stepping into is something that you should understand more like a war zone, uh, that it's a risky place to go. Yeah. And it seems like, oh, I'm smart enough and tough enough to protect myself from the war zone. Um, but that's true only if you really know that you're going into a war zone. <laughs> uh, so you have to take the amount of four seriously. Um, and, uh, and then there's all these things that follow from that, you know, because it's an epistemological, spiritual, cultural war. It's not one of physical violence yet or predominantly. Um, and so that means that what is occurring when you take a hit is something like an epistemological subtraction from your like life meter. Like if you imagine like an epistemological life meter, like in a video game above your head, right? Um, the question of how much of your relationship to reality can you sacrifice <laughs> uh, before it's too much, right? And you mentioned that feedback loop and that between us, reality, and our informational intermediaries, right? And uh, that's the Baudrillardian, Baudrillardian simulation, right? Baudrillard, the postmodernist who had this theory, basically a theory of civilizational collapse, <laughs> which is predicated upon deepening levels of simulation. With the success of civilization comes its ability to insulate itself in a simulation, the story that it tells about itself, similar to the way I insulate myself 
uh, in a story that I tell about myself. Um, and, uh, and the whole idea is you built defense mechanisms <laughs> to keep the stories you tell about yourself free from, uh, you know, distortion and uh, being undermined. And then good psychologists or a long relationship or good friends will be able to like get in there <laughs> through the simulation you have of yourself and point to how who you really are. Uh, but with civilizations, it's much more complex, but they have the same defense mechanisms that protect their simulations. Uh, and then uh, those same dynamics of eventual disconnect from reality to the point where reality will rear its ugly head one way or another. <laughs> uh, and again, nature being the apocalypse of the mind. Um, this was not a bad virus <laughs> in the world of viruses. Like, um, we got lucky, you could argue, as this being the first global pandemic, right? Um, and again, it's hard to even know the accuracy of what I'm saying there. Like I'm aware that my understanding of what the coronavirus is, uh, I had to work laboriously to extract <laughs> um, from a completely distorted information environment, uh, laboriously, which included speaking to experts um, uh, who themselves were confused by the information environment. Um, uh, rarely would I believe anyone who was certain about anything having to do with the virus, because how the hell could you be? <laughs> The science is so novel and fresh and the measures are so inconclusive, et cetera. So I got very worried when people started being very, very sure of themselves about what this thing was and the way to deal with it. But that's another, like yes. another story. The broader point I was making was that the ability of civilizations to embed their citizens in simulations of reality uh, is, is known, documented, dangerous phenomenon. Uh, and so the question of did the coronavirus bring us closer in touch with reality or did the coronavirus bring us deeper into a simulation of reality uh, is an important question to ask. Because if, if we as a society have downgraded our capacity for learning about reality, then we're in a more dangerous situation. If we have upgraded our capacity for learning about reality as a whole as a society, then that's actually called, I think, progress forgive me in quotation marks, postmodern caveats everywhere, progress would be the society's ability to improve its ability to learn about reality, not by executing, not progress marked by executing certain standards of equity or progress marked by executing certain moral things we believe in now, progress marked by getting the society to learn better about reality. <laughs> uh, that would be so that reality broadly construed, not reductive, positivist, material reality, the reality of our interiorities, the reality of culture, history, um, et cetera. So forgive me the, the kind of like diversion there, but I think it's important to get that yeah. my personal sense is that we've been driven deeper into a simulation of reality because the powers invested in so much of maintaining civilization have confronted something very, very complex. Um, and so they're actually... <laughs> putting on an appearance um the question of how many people know that they're dealing and creating a simulation and how many people have no idea i'm talking about people like boris johnson right those who throw christmas parties when others are in lockdown like is that a symptom of 
they're being really well aware that they're creating a simulation of reality for everybody else. Um, or is that just stupidity? I mean, so I'm just saying, but you can see how once you start to realize that there's this big difference between reality and what civilization presents to you as reality, yeah. <laughs> uh, then a whole bunch of stuff actually starts to become apparent. But Well, that's that's... Well, first of all, I just wanted to commend what you spoke to about actually making sense of COVID and how smoky that is. Like that was a beautiful disclosure of academic, uh, integrous approach to this time. Um, but what, what you've just spoken to, uh, the kind of experience of gaslighting or like it, it used to be that you sort of had to really look to the fringe to sort of find the instances where um, some sort of rule is being upheld for everybody. And then you step through a door and the rule is completely evaporated. You know, it's masks everywhere except for inside of the Senate and then that kind of thing. Um, but now it seems to be most of the population, I would say like the average person is being subject to the imposition of a dogma and then the underlying basis of the dogma changes. So they switch it out and then a new rule is brought in. And there's something about this that actually seems to like the more you consent to the ground and the Overton window being changed and moved, the more you're sort of sinking into this, um, this toxic dynamic where you, you don't have your own connection to, to what's real. Um, so I, I wanted to introduce another thing from the paper, which I really was really cool to come across Pierre de Jardin um, and his idea, his, his almost prophetic expression of the directionality of the neosphere, as you guys put it, the neosphere, the sort of information, idea, cognitive layer of reality was going to heat up as the world sort of converged in upon itself as globalization occurred it would be like more confrontation of more different understandings of reality and that would heat up to some sort of precipice um and he spoke to the omega point as um as a sort of unforeseeable breakthrough opportunity that could occur in the context of that a sort of profound um, collective awakening and emergence of Christ consciousness, something of that nature um, and magnitude. So, hmm. yeah, I would love to speak to that a little bit. And I also want to introduce a couple more pieces um, for the sort of last last act of the of the dialogue. Um, I mean, my feeling is that for me and for the young people, the people in my men, men emerging men group and friends who are sort of engaged in this sense making and in their own developmental spiritual journeys, they're in a kind of exodus where they've left um, a place of grounding in the reality that was handed to them. And now are in a sort of perpetual movement um, through the desert of the real and occasionally coming together into this beautiful harmonic sense of making sense of this time and finding the the musicality of that so for me dialogos 
the practices of collective intelligence and transformative dialogue are the kind of way in which we can, one of the ways we can build little arcs through that exodus into this sort of chaotic time. Um, so I wonder if you could speak to, to that. And I know you sometimes throw in the Hebrew metaphors and symbols. Um, and I'm very interested to, to hear more about that. Yeah, there's a lot in there. So <clears throat> yeah, so Tilliard, uh, Deschardin, and the notion of the Nuosphere, which is of course classic. Um, the notion actually comes from Tilliard Deschardin's collaboration with a, one of the, probably one of the greatest Russians who ever lived, Vladimir uh, Verdansky, um, who first came up with the notion of the biosphere and the newosphere. <laughs> uh, um, and he spoke of consciousness and specifically reason as a geological force that operated on geological timescales that you had the given geological forces that shaped the planet. <laughs> and then from those emerged another geological force of the biosphere, which reshaped the rock itself. Uh, and then you had, of course, mind or consciousness or what he called reason, uh, which is a particular kind of higher order mind. I'll speak to Henriquez about those different forms, but the point being that it's a, it's a, geological force <laughs> and the most obvious evidence of this is urbanization you know but then the for eventually for for Dansky and and for Tiliar, the atomic bomb which is literally the releasing of a cosmic force by reason in this weird little small biosphere we release this like crazy <laughs> cosmic force uh, through our operating mind so that notion that yeah the whole game changes when mind evolves on the rock in the middle and then so and then the more specific point was that the way this thing evolves the way mind evolves the way the newosphere evolves because it's on a rock that's a sphere as opposed to a flat plane let's say which teliard speculated about uh you were inevitably running into one another like the the if we succeed we will inevitably meet that there will be an inevitable planetization of the human, uh, just as there was an inevitable cerebralization or encephalization of the primate, right? And that's talking about the, the kind of trajectory towards complexity of consciousness in the nervous system as one of the telos of biological evolution. So then you get the telos of the newosphere towards this kind of closure of, of the human family in one networked consciousness basically. Uh, and of course that's related to the notion about geological force, which is at that point, we hold the whole planet in our hands, basically. Like we could destroy the whole thing if we wanted to. Um, so there's a, some kind of fulcrum that occurs there, which, which has been noted uh, by Tilliard um, uh, that there's a, but also by others that this is a critical moment or a critical path, as Bucky Fuller would say, this moment of planetization and specifically the telos of the newospheres, right? And so if you relate this conversation to our prior one about simulation versus reality, and you think, okay, does the planetary newosphere, when it reaches virtual closure, 
get in touch with reality and Christ consciousness floods the metaverse? <laughs> or is it the case that when this thing goes into virtual closure, we get a kind of strange dystopian planetary virtual simulation based authoritarian kind of like lock-in that lasts for a very long time because it's very hard to escape from right which is interestingly like that's a one of the hypotheses bostrom nick bostrom the great existential risk expert postulates as a potential major catastrophic risk is a kind of planetary totalitarianism as a result of that um uh, irresistible information-based simulation creation so it's but that's like the matrix metaphor right <laughs> uh, interestingly enough baudrillard is the book that neo opens in the opening scene of the matrix to take the thing out of that's a baudrillard book so this is it's all kind of has to weave together i think we probably spoke about that last time we were on so there's some theme here uh that we keep revisiting um and so many people took the newosphere to mean the internet Basically, especially in the early days of the internet, there was a kind of tech, there was kind of a transhumanist techno utopianism that emerged from some readers of Tiliard. Now, interestingly enough, Verdonsky was a member of the Russian cosmist movement. The Russian cosmists are fascinating. Not many futurists uh, in the West know about the cosmists, but the cosmists have many of the main futurist ideas, including physical immortality um, and kind of like a cosmic colonization as destiny. Uh, and then also saving the sun from self-destruction and other things which uh, concern transhumanists, um, but that don't really concern uh, normal people. <laughs> uh, so the cosmos are worth checking out, but the point I was making was that the internet gets synonymized with the newosphere and there was this kind of techno utopianist hope that the internet would kind of like make the teleardian christ consciousness a, a reality this obviously has not happened it was a misunderstanding i believe yes the digital has something to do with the interconnections necessary for the newosphere to like reach its um uh, evolutionary potential but it's in the dynamics you're describing of actual communication between actual humans where the most powerful dynamics of consciousness exist. Um, and so this is, I think, a very subtle point, but it's worth, it's worth getting into, which is that there are ways of thinking about collective intelligence where you posit something like a superordinate kind of like, quote, being that could have a distinct identity from the group itself. Um, and then there's another way to think about collective consciousness where it's a very complex, dynamical, embodied process, uh, which basically requires the co-presence of people um, and that there is no, um, there's nothing more ontologically significant uh, than the people right if you're in the model where okay we all get together and it starts to work right and then all of a sudden there is a thing that we are now all beholden to which is greater than us right um i believe that phenomenologically that is the experience but i believe the place to locate that thing is in each person not in something that is greater than the people 
there's a subtle distinction, but it's the difference between a kind of totalitarian reading of Hegel and kind of a, of a liberating reading of Hegel, right? Um, and other key thinkers who play at this matrix of like, what comes next? Oh, it must be something that emerges through the human, something like what Christ was prophesizing and his early practitioners were doing, which was like this group process where all of a sudden there's more to any of us than we could be individually because we're being together in the presence of God, basically. Uh, I've seen that go wrong because I've seen it turn into basically a form of uh, like a, a form of crypto totalitarianism, frankly, because <laughs> because an identity is the group comes to have an identity that's more important than the identity of any of the individual members, right? Um, it's possible to have a group that has an identity that's co-equal with the identity of the individual members. And then it's possible to have a group that has no identity. And then it's not really a group. That's mostly what we struggle with. And so because we don't normally have groups with identities that we feel we belong to, and we don't know how to commit ourselves to something larger than ourselves, which is not actually something larger than ourselves, but it's just the other people. This is the point I'm making. <laughs> uh, then we end up flying all the way towards these, what I would call kind of old school groups, which basically uh, in kind of Hebrew terms, would be idolatry, right? Because you will have created something like uh, a group identity or image or consciousness, which you then kind of worship <laughs> and are willing to sacrifice yourself to, uh, which is a lower order God than the God you're doing the practice in the presence of, right? So mm. I don't have time to elaborate this, but you're bringing up this point and I know the world that you're speaking to, the world of circling, the world of collective intelligence and emergent consciousness, uh, and amazing things happen that are phenomenologically very hard to piece apart. And I've seen people phenomenologically switch into a, I believe, collapse of the individual into group consciousness um, and specifically a form of ethical commitment that deprioritizes the individual in favor of some abstract representation of the group consciousness. <laughs> uh, uh, and then there's another way of having that allegiance, but the allegiance is two concrete individuals who in themselves embody the ideals of the group. And so it's not a faceless commitment to an abstract ideal of a group. It's an embodied, concrete, unique commitment to you and you and you, <laughs> mm. right? And that's very, very different because if you have that, then I will never do something terrible to you in the interest of the group image. <laughs> Right, or in the interest of the group consciousness that we supposedly created, I will always be looking at you and dealing with you. If you go the other way, then it's very easy for you to be just kind of a, a certain type in this subclass, all committed to this broader thing. And so now you become much more easy to strategically relate to in the interest of the greater good, right? Um, and so that's like a subtle thing and it's easier to demonstrate in practice with people when the phenomenological events begin to occur uh, wow. um, but a lot of it's mixed in with the language too and a tendency to over ontologize the occurrences uh, of those group practices yeah that's a really really important um juncture or like thing to see that the realm of possibility 
um, because it seems to me that we are moving towards more of that kind of thing, more of these kinds of emergent group um, processes, gatherings. Um, for me, it's about sort of containers that come together through a period of time and then dissolve. Um, and, you know, unique self symphonies, we have to inquire more into that as well. Um, but it, it seems to me that that potential is really essential to responding to what we've spoken about thus far. And you've really articulated this more in terms of an educational, the, the sort of revolution in education, maybe that's the wrong word to use. But I, I want to posit that maybe this kind of dialogue practice, this transformative dialogue, however we're going to term it, becomes an integral part of that somehow, that it becomes part of the civic duty that allows you to lift up from, um, from that downward spiral that we seem to be in, where the fabric is literally just burning and flaking um, before our eyes and to actually be able to, to revitalize it together. Yeah, man. Yeah, totally. I agree. I mean, it's, <clears throat> you know, the, I talk about the educational relationship as a, as a species specific trait, you know, like there's something very unique that the human does with the young, with the younger humans taking men, a lot of time and care. Um, and and so there are still places, even today, in, in this mix where you can find, especially parent-child or mother-child relationships, caregiver-child relationships. Um, it's in those relationships where, uh, by the grace of God, usually you still have the preservation of non-strategic communication, right? The preservation of non-simulated co-relation to reality and to the realities that we each represent right and so we have to take sanctuary in those places where we know that the warfare is not taking place um, uh, and then from there begin to extrapolate out what it would look like to actually respect our interlocutors <laughs> uh, and to relate to people even to people less informed than us right and this is speaking to the powers that be who run nudge campaigns right like the idea would be that you, there are ways to establish sincere educational relationships of care um, that don't involve manipulation. Uh, so I think we just need to return to those sentiments of the hearth. I'm just noticing in the background of the of the hearth and of the home, uh, and of the intimacy of non-strategic good faith communication, which exists. We all know it, and in fact, the whole world runs on it. <laughs> Uh, despite the fact that there's this overwhelming kind of colonization of those practices by the by the systemic imperatives um, that make coercion almost like uh, an obligation to your shareholders. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, that would be the thing that I would end on, which is that, and this is true for the circling and, and those things too. It's like, think about the relationships being created here. Many of them are so good. Many of them are so good. And the reason they're so good is because they have that taste of non-coercive communication. Um, and so we need to get used to that 
And then from that context, learn to establish relationships of teacherly authority uh, and education where there's an epistemic asymmetry and yet there's still mutual respect, <laughs> uh, love and a shared interest in both parties benefiting from the relationship. Um, and so then from there, healthy teacherly authority, healthy educational relationships, then you can start to rebuild something like a larger civilization or a larger um, you know, project of reform. But absent those things, uh, it becomes hard to hard to talk to one another, which is the situation we're in we're in now. Um, so yeah, so slowing down and working on that. But it's also just like I said, it's not at this point completely about what we do with our with our minds and our and our mouths. Like there are a whole bunch of complex just material processes in play, which I mentioned before, these supply chains and digital technologies and uh, economic realities that are have their own path dependent evolution and development in the next five, 10 years, right? Um, so uh, that's why it's, you can't just have conversations about conversation. You, you also need to have conversations about material reality and what's going on there. Um, so I'm pointing to these things, these screens <laughs> that are intermediating us because uh, that is a material reality that we're interacting with. We pretend it's not there. Um, and so I'm saying like, note this shit, man, because that's the first thing to disentangle from. Um, I'm starting to think of just like a just say no campaign, but that's just too blunt. Um, maybe you're not aware of that was an anti-drug campaign by uh, Ronald Reagan. It's a wife, you know, uh, Nancy Reagan, just say no. It was actually very effective. But at some point, we're going to need to have a widespread change in social attitudes towards certain kinds of technology use. That could be coming as well. Yeah. So I think we're just scratching the surface here, actually. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Zach. And um, yeah, I just want to say Godspeed to the effort that you're engaged in and that so many others are engaged in as well. Yeah, man. Thank you. This was fun. Hopefully, Juice told you guys. And uh, yeah, I look forward to, to hearing more. All right, thank you, Zach. Yeah, brother.